0: Hey everyone, this episode is brought to you by com. Keep your feet warm And why not get something sent to you in the mail Feel like uh, you're getting something, you know Hey, get something in the mail during self-isolation Yeah, that's it com. Keep your feet warm um, Yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely to put a timestamp on when this show's coming out It is March 20-somethingth I've kind of quit I don't know, caring about the time. Um it's just kind of a countdown till late April when the kids go back to school and I can I don't know. I'm I'm honestly just waiting for free tests or not tests. Just I'm waiting for tests to be available in my area so I can go back to work cuz I was sick. Now I'm not sick and I can't go back to work until I test clean. Uh yeah, so hey, I'm going to be doing this for a while. I'm bored. Uh, None of my podcasts are podcasting because of the fact that everyone's sick, doesn't want to be around each other. This is the great thing about being a one-man show. I just find stuff, I put it up, and I put it out. I'm probably going to be doing some Skype interviews with some folks to keep this train moving. I want you to have entertainment. That's what I've always wanted. I've wanted to, you know, people who can't read. I want them to be able to read and listen to uh, some classic literature, people who have learning disabilities. And... You know, don't like to read. I want them to know who the classics are. my brother joe and this is this is kind of why I do this, and also, it's nice to have stuff to listen to all day long. I listen to podcasts all day long when I'm not making podcasts or working on stuff that I can't listen to podcasts and I just want to say support small podcasts. you know there's all those like ear howls out there, and you're you know your big media types and stuff like that support small podcasts help keep us going we keep you going we we'll f- we fill your day with all kinds of stuff help keep us going especially in a time like this where some of us are unemployed if you want to do that that'd be great there's more important stuff to give money and time to than podcasters right now i'll be super super duper serious about that so do what you can and remember we are available on facebook um you know, PGT-TCM, Black Clock, Audio Tales, Arthur Mackins, Three Imposters. This is one that I've done bits and pieces of when it was uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos 24-7. But now, hey, with this, with Black Clock Audio Tales, I finally get to cover it. If you want to go back through the catalogs and listen to old stuff, I've got various people recording this back when I was trying to do that. But hey, here we go. Three Imposters. We're available on Instagram. And also anywhere that you're going to find podcasts and Black Clock Audio Tales, special edition.
1: Recording by Tony Oliva, The Three Impostors by Arthur Macken. Prologue. And Mr. Joseph Walters is going to stay the night, said the smooth, clean-shaven man to his companion, an individual not of the most charming appearance, who had chosen to make his ginger-colored mustache merge into a pair of short chin whiskers. The two stood at the hall door grinning evilly at each other, and presently a girl ran quickly down the stairs and joined them. She was quite young, with a quaint and piquant rather than a beautiful face, and her eyes were of a shining hazel. She held a neat paper parcel in one hand and laughed with her friends. "'Leave the door open,' said the smooth man to the other as they were going out. "'Yes, bye." He went on with an ugly oath, we'll leave the front door on the jar he may like to see company you know the other man looked doubtfully about him is it quite prudent do you think davies he said pausing with his hand on the moldering knocker i don't think lipsius would like it what do you say helen i agree with davies davies is an artist and you are commonplace richmond and a bit of a coward let the door stand open of course but what a pity lipsius had to go away he would have enjoyed himself yes replied the smooth mr davies that summons to the west was very hard on the doctor the three passed out leaving the hall door cracked and riven with frost and wet half open and they stood silent for a moment under the ruinous shelter of the porch well said the girl it is done at last We shall hurry no more on the track of the young man with spectacles we owe a great deal to you said mr davies politely the doctor said so before he left but have we not all three some farewells to make i for my part propose to say goodbye here before this picturesque but moldy residence to my friend mr burton dealer in the antique and curious And the man lifted his hat with an exaggerated bow. And I, said Richmond, bid adieu to Mr. Wilkins, the private secretary, whose company has, I confess, become a little tedious. Farewell to Miss Lally and to Miss Lester also, said the girl, making as she spoke a delicious curtsy. Farewell to all occult adventure. The farce is played. Mr. Davies and the lady seemed full of grim enjoyment, but Richmond tugged at his whiskers nervously. "'I feel a bit shaken up,' he said. "'I've seen rougher things in the States, but that crying noise he made gave me a sickish feeling, and then the smell, but then my stomach was never very strong.' The three friends moved away from the door and began to walk slowly up and down what had been a gravel path but now lay green and pulpy with damp mosses it was a fine autumn evening and a faint sunlight shone on the yellow walls of the old deserted house and showed the patches of gangrenous decay the black drift of rain from the broken pipes the scabrous blots where the bare bricks were exposed the green weeping of a gaunt laburnum that stood beside the porch and ragged marks near the ground where the reeking clay was gaining on the worn foundations it was a queer rambling old place the center perhaps two hundred years old with dormer windows sloping from the tiled roof and on each side there were Georgian wings bow windows had been carried up to the first floor and two dome-like cupolas that had once been painted a bright green were now grey and neutral broken urns lay upon the path and a heavy mist seemed to rise from the unctuous clay the neglected shrubberies, grown all tangled and unshapen smelt dank and evil and there was an atmosphere all about the deserted mansion that proposed thoughts of an opened grave the three friends looked dismally at the rough grasses and the nettles that grew thick over lawn and flowerbeds, and at the sad water pool in the midst of the weeds. There, above green and oily scum, instead of lilies stood a rusting triton on the rocks, sounding a dirge through a shattered horn, and beyond, beyond the sunk fence... In the far meadows, the sun slid down and shone red through the bars of the elm trees. Richmond shivered and stamped his foot. We had better be going soon, he said. There's nothing else to be done here. No, said Davies, it is finished at last. I thought for some time we should never get hold of the gentleman with the spectacles. He was a clever fellow, but Lord... "'He broke up badly at last. "'I can tell you, he looked white at me when I touched him on the arm in the bar. "'But where could he have hidden the thing? "'We can all swear it was not on him.' "'The girl laughed, and they turned away when Richmond gave a violent start. Ah! he cried, turning to the girl. "'What have you got there? "'Look, Davies, look, it's all oozing and dripping.' "'The young woman glanced down at the little parcel she was carrying "'and partially unfolded the paper. "'Yes, look, both of you,' she said. "'It's my own idea. "'Don't you think it will do nicely for the doctor's museum? "'It comes from the right hand, "'the hand that took the gold Tiberius.' "'Mr. Davies nodded with a good deal of approbation, "'and Richmond lifted his ugly high-crowned bowler "'and wiped his forehead with a dingy handkerchief.' "'I'm going,' he said. "'You two can stay if you like.' The three went round by the stable path past the withered wilderness of the old kitchen garden and struck off by a hedge at the back, making for a particular point in the road. About five minutes later, two gentlemen, whom idleness had led to explore these forgotten outskirts of London, came sauntering up the shadowy carriage drive, They had spied the deserted house from the road, and as they observed all the heavy desolation of the place, they began to moralize in the great style, with considerable debts to Jeremy Taylor. "'Look, Tyson,' said the one as they drew nearer, "'look at those upper windows. The sun is setting, and, though the panes are dusty yet, the grimy sash of an oriole burns.' Phillips replied the elder, and it must be said the more pompous of the two i yield to fantasy i cannot withstand the influence of the grotesque here where all is falling into dimness and dissolution and we walk in sea-darn gloom and the very air of heaven goes moldering to the lungs i cannot remain commonplace i look at that deep glow on the panes and the house lies all enchanted THAT VERY ROOM, I TELL YOU, IS WITHIN ALL BLOOD AND FIRE. END OF PROLOGUE RECORDING BY TONY OLIVA ADVENTURE OF THE GOLD TIBERIUS The acquaintance between Mr. Dyson and Mr. Charles Phillips arose from one of those myriad chances which are every day doing their work in the streets of London. Mr. Dyson was a man of letters, and an unhappy instance of talents misapplied. With gifts that might have placed him in the flower of his youth, among the most favoured of Bentley's favorite novelists, he had chosen to be perverse. He was, it is true, familiar with scholastic logic, but he knew nothing of the logic of life, and he flattered himself with the title of artist— when he was in fact but an idle and curious spectator of other men's endeavors. Among many delusions he cherished one most fondly, that he was a strenuous worker, and it was with a gesture of supreme weariness that he would enter his favorite resort, a small tobacco shop in Great Queen Street, and proclaimed to anyone who cared to listen that he had seen the rising and setting of two successive suns. The proprietor of the shop, a middle-aged man of singular civility, tolerated Dyson partly out of good nature and partly because he was a regular customer. He was allowed to sit on an empty cask and to express his sentiments on literary and artistic matters till he was tired or the time for closing came and if no fresh customers were attracted, it is believed that none were turned away by his eloquence. Dyson was addicted to wild experiments in tobacco. He never wearied of trying new combinations, and one evening he had just entered the shop and given utterance to his last preposterous formula, when a young fellow of about his own age, who had come in a moment later, asked the shopman to duplicate the order on his account smiling politely as he spoke to mr dyson's address dyson felt profoundly flattered and after a few phrases the two entered into conversation and in an hour's time the tobacconist saw the new friends sitting side by side on a couple of casks deep in talk my dear sir said dyson i will give you the task of the literary man in a phrase he has got to do simply this to invent a wonderful story and to tell it in a wonderful manner i will grant you that said mr phillips but you will allow me to insist that in the hands of the true artist in words all stories are marvelous and every circumstance has its peculiar wonder the matter is of little consequence the manner is everything indeed the highest skill is shown in taking matter apparently commonplace and transmuting it by the high alchemy of style into the pure gold of art That is indeed a proof of great skill. But it is great skill exerted foolishly, or at least unadvisedly. It is as if a great violinist were to show us what marvelous harmonies he could draw from a child's banjo. No, no, you are really wrong. I see you take a radically mistaken view of life. But we must thresh this out. Come to my rooms. I live not far from here it was thus that mr dyson became the associate of mr charles phillips who lived in a quiet square not far from holborn thenceforth they haunted each other's rooms at intervals sometimes regular and occasionally the reverse and made appointments to meet at the shop in queen street where their talk robbed the tobacconist's profit of half its charm there was a constant jarring of literary formulas dyson exalting the claims of the pure imagination while phillips who was a student of physical science and something of an ethnologist insisted that all literature ought to have scientific basis by the mistaken benevolence of deceased relatives both young men were placed out of reach of hunger and so meditating high achievements idled their time pleasantly away and revelled in the careless joys of a bohemianism devoid of the sharp seasoning of adversity one night in june mr phillips was sitting in his room in the calm retirement of red lion square He had opened the window and was smoking placidly while he watched the movement of life below. The sky was clear and the afterglow of sunset had lingered long about it. The flushing twilight of a summer evening vied with the gas lamps in the square and fashioned a chiaroscuro that had in it something unearthly and the children racing to and fro upon the pavement, the lounging idlers by the public-house, the casual passers-by, rather flickered and hovered in the play of lights than stood out substantial things. By degrees, in the houses opposite, one window after another leapt out a square of light. Now and again a figure would shape itself against a blind and vanish. And to all this semi-theatrical magic, the runs and flourishes of brave Italian opera, played a little distance off on a piano organ, seemed an appropriate accompaniment, while the deep-muttered bass of the traffic of Holborn never ceased. Phillips enjoyed the scene and its effects. The light in the sky faded and turned to darkness, and the square gradually grew silent, "'and still he sat dreaming at the window, "'till the sharp peal of the house-bell roused him, "'and, looking at his watch, he found that it was past ten o'clock. "'There was a knock at the door, and his friend Mr. Dyson entered, "'and, according to his custom, sat down in an armchair "'and began to smoke in silence. "'You know, Phillips,' he said at length, "'that I have always battled for the marvelous." "'I remember your maintaining in that chair "'that one has no business to make use of the wonderful, "'the improbable, "'the odd coincidence in literature, "'and you took the ground that it was wrong to do so, "'because, as a matter of fact, "'the wonderful and the improbable don't happen, "'and men's lives are not really shaped by odd coincidence. "'Now, mind you, If that were so, I would not grant your conclusion because... I think the criticism of life theory is all nonsense. But I deny your premise. A most singular thing has happened to me tonight. Really, Dyson, I am very glad to hear it. Of course, I oppose your argument, whatever it may be. But if you would be good enough to tell me of your adventure, I should be delighted. Well... "'It came about like this. "'I have had a very hard day's work. "'Indeed, I have scarcely moved from my old bureau "'since seven o'clock last night. "'I wanted to work out that idea we discussed last Tuesday, "'you know, the notion of the fetish worshipper. "'Yes, I remember. "'Have you been able to do anything with it?' "'Yes. It came out better than I expected.' "'but there were great difficulties of uh, the usual agony "'between the conception and the execution. "'Anyhow, I got it done about seven o'clock tonight, "'and I thought I should like a little of the fresh air. "'I went out and wandered rather aimlessly about the streets. "'My head was full of my tail, "'and I didn't much notice where I was going. "'I got into those quiet places, "'to the north of Oxford Street as you go west,' "'the genteel residential neighborhood of stucco and prosperity. "'I turned east again without knowing it, "'and it was quite dark when I passed along a somber little by-street, "'ill-lighted and empty. "'I did not know at the time in the least where I was, "'but I found out afterwards that it was not very far from Tottenham Court Road. "'I strolled idly along, enjoying the stillness.' "'On one side there seemed to be the back premises of some great shop, "'tier after tier of dusty windows lifted up into the night "'with gibbet-like contrivances for raising heavy goods, "'and below large doors fast closed and bolted, all dark and desolate. "'Then there came a huge Pantechnican warehouse.' "'and over the way a grim blank wall as forbidding as the wall of a jail, "'and then the headquarters of some volunteer regiment "'and afterwards a passage leading to a court "'where wagons were standing to be hired. "'It was, uh, one might almost say, a street devoid of inhabitants, "'and scarce a window showed the glimmer of a light. "'I was wondering at the strange peace and dimness there,' where it must be close to some roaring main artery of London life, when suddenly I heard the noise of dashing feet tearing along the pavement at full speed, and from a narrow passage a muse, or something of that kind, a a man was discharged, as from a catapult under my very nose, and rushed past me, flinging something from him as he ran." "'He was gone and down another street in an instant, "'almost before I knew what had happened. "'But I didn't much bother about him. "'I was watching something else. "'I told you he had thrown something away. "'Well, I watched what seemed like a line of flame "'flash through the air and fly quivering over the pavement, "'and in spite of myself, I could not help tearing after it. "'The impetus lessened, and I saw something like a bright halfpenny roll slower and slower and then deflect toward the gutter hover for a moment on the edge and dance down into a drain I believe I cried out in positive despair though I hadn't the least notion of what I was hunting and then to my joy I saw that instead of dropping into a sewer it had fallen flat across two bars. I stooped down and picked it up and whipped it into my pocket, and I was just about to walk on, when I heard again that sound of dashing footsteps. I don't know why I did it, but as a matter of fact I dived down into the mews, or whatever it was, and stood as much in the shadow as possible. A man went by with a rush a few paces from where I was standing, and I felt uncommonly pleased that I was in hiding. I couldn't make out much feature, but I saw his eyes gleaming and his teeth showing, and he had an ugly-looking knife in one hand, and I thought things would be very unpleasant for gentleman number one if the second robber, or what you like, caught him up. I can tell you, Phillips, a fox hunt is exciting enough when the horn blows clear on a winter morning and the hounds give tongue and the red coats charge away but it's nothing to a manhunt, and that's what I thought I had a slight glimpse of to-night. There was murder in the fellow's eyes as he went by, and I don't think there was much more than fifty seconds between the two. I only hope it was enough. Dyson leant back in his armchair, relit his pipe, and puffed thoughtfully. Phillips began to walk up and down the room, musing over the story of violent death fleeting in chase along the pavement, the knife shining in the lamplight, the fury of the pursuer, and the terror of the pursued. "'Well,' he said at last, "'and what was it, after all, that you rescued from the gutter?' Dyson jumped up, evidently quite startled. "'I really haven't a notion. I didn't think of looking. But we shall see.' he fumbled in his waistcoat pocket drew out a small and shining object and laid it on the table it glowed there beneath the lamp with the radiant glory of rare old gold and the image and the letters stood out in high relief clear and sharp as if it had but left the mint a month before the two men bent over it and phillips took it up and examined it closely Imp? period, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, he read the legend, and then looking at the reverse of the coin, he stared in amazement, and at last turned to Dyson with a look of exultation. "'Do you know what you have found?' he said. "'Apparently a gold coin of some antiquity,' said Dyson coolly. "'Quite so. A gold Tiberius. No, that is wrong. You have found THE gold Tiberius.' "'Look at the reverse.' "'Dyson looked and saw the coin was stamped "'with the figure of a fawn "'standing amidst reeds and flowing water. "'The features, minute as they were, "'stood out in delicate outline. "'It was a face lovely and yet terrible. "'And yet Dyson thought of the well-known passage "'of the lad's playmate, "'gradually growing with his growth "'and increasing with his stature.' "'till the air was filled with a rank fume of the goat. "'Yes,' he said. "'It is a curious coin. "'Do you know it?' "'I know about it. "'It is one of the comparatively few historical objects in existence. "'It is all storied like those jewels we have read of. "'A whole cycle of legends has gathered around the thing. "'The tale goes that it formed part of an issue struck by Tiberius to commemorate an infamous excess. You see, the legend on the reverse, Victoria. It is said that, by an extraordinary accident, the whole issue was thrown into the melting pot, and that only this one coin escaped. It glints through history and legend, appearing and disappearing with intervals of a hundred years in time and continents in place. It was... Discovered by an Italian humanist and lost and rediscovered, it has not been heard of since seventeen twenty seven when Sir Joshua Bird, a Turkey merchant, brought it home from Aleppo and vanished with it a month after he had shown it to the Virtuosi. No man knew or knows where, and here it is. Put it into your pocket, Dyson he said after a pause. I would not let anyone have a glimpse of the thing if I were you. I would not talk about it. Did either of the men you saw see you? Well, I think not. I don't think the first man, the man who was vomited out of the dark passage, saw anything at all. And I am sure that he could not have seen me. And you couldn't really see them? You couldn't recognize either one or the other if you met him in the street tomorrow? No, I don't think I could the street, as I said, was dimly lighted, and they ran like madmen. The two men sat silent for some time, each weaving his own fancies of the story, but lust of the Marvelous was slowly overpowering Dyson's more sober thoughts. It is all more strange than I fancied, he said at last. It was queer enough what I saw. A man is sauntering along a quiet, sober, everyday london street a street of gray houses and blank walls and there for a moment a veil seems drawn aside and the very fume of the pit steams up through the flagstones the ground glows red hot beneath his feet and he seems to hear the hiss of the infernal cauldron a man flying in mad terror for his life and furious hate "'pressing hot on his steps with knife drawn ready. "'Here, indeed, is horror. "'But what is all that to what you have told me? "'I tell you, Phillips, I see the plot thicken. "'Our steps will henceforth be dogged with mystery, "'and the most ordinary incidents will teem with significance. "'You may stand out against it and shut your eyes.' But they will be forced open, mark my words. You will have to yield to the inevitable. A clue, tangled if you like, has been placed by chance in our hands. It will be our business to follow it up. As for the guilty person or persons in this strange case, they will be unable to escape us, our nets will be spread far and wide over this great city, and suddenly, in the streets and places of public resort, we shall in some way or other be made aware that we are in touch with the unknown criminal. Indeed, I almost fancy I see him slowly approaching this quiet square of yours his loitering at street corners wandering apparently without aim down far-reaching thoroughfares but all the while coming nearer and nearer drawn by an irresistible magnetism as ships were drawn to the lodestone rock in the eastern tail I certainly think, replied Phillips, that if you pull out that coin and flourish it under people's noses as you are doing at the present moment, you will very probably find yourself in touch with the criminal, or a criminal. You will undoubtedly be robbed with violence." "'Otherwise I see no reason why either of us should be troubled. "'No one saw you secure the coin, and no one knows you have it. "'I, for my part, shall sleep peacefully "'and go about my business with a sense of security "'and a firm dependence on the natural order of things. "'The events of the evening, the adventure in the street, "'have been odd, I grant you, "'but I resolutely decline to have any more to do with the matter, "'and, if necessary, I shall consult the police.' i will not be enslaved by a gold tiberius even though it swims into my ken in a manner which is somewhat melodramatic and i for my part said dyson go forth like a knight-errant in search of adventure not that i shall need to seek "'Rather, adventure will seek me. "'I shall be like a spider in the midst of his web, "'responsive to every movement and ever on the alert.' "'Shortly afterwards, Dyson took his leave, "'and Mr. Phillips spent the rest of the night "'in examining some flint arrowheads which he had purchased. "'He had every reason to believe "'that they were the work of a modern and not a paleolithic man,' Still he was far from gratified when a close scrutiny showed him that his suspicions were well-founded. In his anger at the turpitude which would impose on an ethnologist, he completely forgot Dyson and the gold Tiberius, and when he went to bed at first sunlight, the whole tale had faded utterly from his thoughts. End of the Adventure of the Gold Tiberius THE ENCOUNTER OF THE PAVEMENT. Mr. Dyson, walking leisurely along Oxford Street and staring with bland inquiry at whatever caught his attention, enjoyed in all its rare flavors the sensation that he was really very hard at work. His observation of mankind, the traffic, and the shop-windows tickled his faculties with an exquisite bouquet he looked serious as one looks on whom charges of weight and moment are laid and he was attentive in his glances to right and left for fear lest he should miss some circumstance of more acute significance he had narrowly escaped being run over at a crossing by a charging van for he hated to hurry his steps and indeed the afternoon was warm and he had just halted by a place of popular refreshment when the astounding gestures of a well-dressed individual on the opposite pavement held him enchanted and gasping like a fish a treble line of hansoms carriages vans cabs and omnibuses was tearing east and west and not the most daring adventurer of the crossings would have cared to try his fortune but the person who had attracted dyson's attention seemed to rage on the very edge of the pavement now and then darting forward at the hazard of instant death "'and at each repulse absolutely dancing with excitement "'to the rich amusement of the passers-by. "'At last a gap that would have tried the courage of a street-boy "'appeared between the serried lines of vehicles "'and the men rushed across in a frenzy "'and escaping by a hair's breadth.' pounced upon dyson as a tiger pounces on her prey i saw you looking about you he said sputtering out his words in his intense eagerness would you mind telling me this was the man who came out of the aerated bread shop and jumped into the hansom three minutes ago a youngish-looking man with dark whiskers and spectacles can't you speak man for heaven's sake can't you speak answer me it's a matter of life and death The words bubbled and boiled out of the man's mouth in the fury of his emotion. His face went from red to white, and the beads of sweat stood out on his forehead. He stamped his feet as he spoke, and tore with his hands at his coat, as if something swelled and choked him, stopping the passage of his breath. "'My dear sir,' said Dyson, I always like to be accurate. Your observation was perfectly correct. As you say, a youngish man, a man, I should say, of somewhat timid bearing, ran rapidly out of the shop here and bounced into a hansom that must have been waiting for him as it went eastward at once. Your friend also wore spectacles, as you say. Perhaps would you like me to call a hansom for you to follow the gentleman? No, thank you. It would be a waste of time. The man gulped down something which appeared to rise in his throat, and Dyson was alarmed to see him shaking with hysterical laughter. He clung hard to a lamppost and swayed and staggered like a ship in a heavy gale. "'How shall I face the doctor?' he murmured to himself. "'It is too hard to fail at the last moment.' Then he seemed to recollect himself. He stood straight again and looked quietly at Dyson. "'I... Oh, you an apology for my violence he said at last many men would not be so patient as you have been would you mind adding to your kindness by walking with me a little way i feel a little sick "'I think it's the sun,' Dyson nodded assent and devoted himself to a quiet scrutiny of this strange personage as they moved on together. The man was dressed in quiet taste, and the most scrupulous observer could find nothing amiss with the fashion or make of his clothes, yet from his hat to his boots everything seemed inappropriate. His silk hat, Dyson thought, should have been a high bowler of odious pattern, worn with a baggy morning coat, and an instinct told him that the fellow did not commonly carry a clean pocket-handkerchief. The face was not of the most agreeable pattern, and was in no way improved by a pair of bulbous chin-whiskers of a ginger hue into which mustaches of like color merged imperceptibly, yet in spite of these signals hung out by nature dyson felt that the individual beside him was something more than compact of vulgarity he was struggling himself holding his feelings in check but now and again passion would mount back to his face and it was evidently by a supreme effort that he kept himself from raging like a madman. Dyson found something curious and a little terrible in the spectacle of an occult emotion, thus striving for the mastery and threatening to break out at every instant with violence, and they had gone some distance before the person whom he had met by so odd a hazard was able to speak quietly. "'You are really very good,' he said. I apologize again. My rudeness was really most unjustifiable. I feel my conduct demands an explanation, and I shall be happy to give it to you. Do you happen to know of any place near here where one could sit down? I should really be very glad.' "'My dear sir,' said Dyson solemnly, "'the only café in London is close by.' "'Pray do not consider yourself as bound to offer me any explanation, "'but at the same time I should be most happy to listen to you. "'Let us turn down here.' "'They walked down a sober street and turned into what seemed a narrow passage "'past an iron-barred gate thrown back. The passage was paved with flagstones and decorated with handsome shrubs in pots on either side, and the shadow of the high walls made a coolness which was very agreeable after the hot breath of the sunny street. Presently the passage opened out into a tiny square, a charming place, a morsel of France transplanted into the heart of London high walls rose on either side covered with glossy creepers flower beds beneath were gay with nasturtiums and marigolds and odorous mignonette and in the center of the square a fountain hidden by greenery sent a cool shower continually plashing into the basin beneath chairs and tables were disposed at convenient intervals and at the other end of the court broad doors had been thrown back beyond was a long dark room and the turmoil of traffic had become a distant murmur within the room one or two men were sitting at the tables writing and sipping but the courtyard was empty you see we shall be quiet said dyson pray sit down here mr wilkins Uh, my name is henry wilkins sit here mr wilkins i think you will find that a comfortable seat i suppose you have not been here before this is the quiet time the place will be like a hive at six o'clock and the chairs and tables will overflow into that little alley there a waiter came in response to the bell and after dyson had politely inquired after the health of monsieur annibol the proprietor he ordered a bottle of the wine of champigny "'The wine of Champigny,' he observed to Mr. Wilkins, "'who was evidently a good deal composed by the influence of the place, "'is a Turanian wine of great merit. "'Ah, here it is. Let me fill your glass. How do you find it?' "'Indeed,' said Mr. Wilkins, "'I should have pronounced it fine burgundy. "'The bouquet is very exquisite. "'I am fortunate in lighting upon such a good Samaritan as yourself.' "'I wonder you did not think me mad. "'But if you knew the terrors that assailed me, "'I am sure you would no longer be surprised at conduct "'which was certainly most unjustifiable.' "'He sipped his wine and leant back in his chair "'relishing the drip and trickle of the fountain "'and the cool greenness that hedged in this little port of refuge. "'Yes,' he said at last, "'That is indeed an admirable wine.' "'Thank you.' "'You will allow me to offer you another bottle?' The waiter was summoned and descended through a trap-door in the floor of the dark apartment and brought up the wine. Mr. Wilkins lit a cigarette and Dyson pulled out his pipe. "'Now,' said Mr. Wilkins, "'I promised to give you an explanation of my strange behavior. "'It is a rather a long story.' But I see, sir, that you are no mere cold observer Of the ebb and flow of life You take, I think, a warm and an intelligent interest In the chances of your fellow creatures And I believe you will find what I have to tell Not devoid of interest Mr. Dyson signified his assent to these propositions And though he thought Mr. Wilkins' diction a little pompous prepared to interest himself in his tale the other who had so raged with passion half an hour before was now perfectly cool and when he had smoked out his cigarette he began in an even voice to relate the novel of the dark valley end of the encounter of the pavement novel of the dark valley i am the son of a poor but learned clergyman in the west of england but i am forgetting these details are not of special interest i will briefly state then my father who was as i have said a learned man who never learnt the specious arts by which the great are flattered "'would never condescend to the despicable pursuit of self-advertisement, "'though his fondness for ancient ceremonies and quaint customs "'combined with a kindness of heart that was unequalled "'and a primitive and fervent piety endeared him to his moorland parishioners. "'Such were not the steps by which clergy then rose in the church.' And at sixty, my father was still incumbent of the little benefice he had accepted in his thirtieth year. The income of the living was barely sufficient to support life in the decencies which are expected of the Anglican parson. And when my father died a few years ago, I his only child found myself thrown upon the world with a slender capital of less than a hundred pounds and all the problem of existence before me. I felt that there was nothing for me to do in the country, and as usually happens in such cases, London drew me like a magnet. One day in August, in the early morning, while the dew still glittered on the turf and on the high green banks of the lane, "'A neighbor drove me to the railway station, "'and I bade good-bye to the land of the broad moors "'and unearthly battlements of the wild Tors. "'It was six o'clock as we neared London. "'The faint, sickly fume of the brick-fields about Acton "'came in puffs through the open window, "'and a mist was rising from the ground.' Presently the brief view of successive streets, prim and uniform, struck me with a sense of monotony. The hot air seemed to grow hotter, and when we had rolled beneath the dismal and squalid houses whose dirty and neglected backyards border the line near Paddington, I felt as if I should be stifled in this fainting breath of London. I got a hansom and drove off and every street increased my gloom gray houses with blinds drawn down whole thoroughfares almost desolate and the foot-passengers who seemed to stagger wearily along rather than walk all made me feel a sinking at heart I put up for the night at a hotel in a street leading from the Strand, where my father had stayed on his few brief visits to town, and when I went out after dinner the real gaiety and bustle of the Strand and Fleet Street could cheer me but little, for in all this great city there was no single human whom I could claim even as an acquaintance. I will not weary you with the history of the next year, for the adventures of a man whose sinks are too trite to be worth recalling. My money did not last me long. I found that I must be neatly dressed, or no one to whom I applied would so much as listen to me, and I must live in a street of decent reputation if I wished to be treated with common civility. I applied for various posts, for which, as I now see, I was completely devoid of qualification. I tried to become a clerk without having the smallest notion of business habits, and I found to my cost that a general knowledge of literature and an execrable style of penmanship are far from being looked upon with favor in commercial circles. I had read one of the most charming of the works of a famous novelist of present day, and I frequented the Fleet Street taverns in hope of making literary friends, and so getting introductions which I understood were indispensable in the career of letters. I was disappointed. I once or twice ventured to address gentlemen who were sitting in adjoining boxes, And I was answered politely indeed, but in a manner that told me my advances were unusual. Pound by pound, my small resources melted. I could no longer think of appearances. I migrated to a shy quarter and... "'My meals became mere observances. "'I went out at one and returned to my room at two, "'but nothing but a mere milk-cake had occurred in the interval. "'In short, I became acquainted with misfortune, "'and as I sat amidst slush and ice on a seat in Hyde Park, "'munching a piece of bread, I realized the bitterness of poverty.' "'and the feelings of a gentleman reduced to something far below the condition of a vagrant. "'In spite of all discouragement, I did not desist in my efforts to earn a living. "'I consulted advertisement columns. I kept my eyes open for a chance. "'I looked in at the windows of stationer's shops, but all in vain. "'One evening.' "'I was sitting in a free library, and I saw an advertisement in one of the papers. "'It was something like this. Uh, "'Wanted by a gentleman, a person of literary taste and abilities as secretary and amanuensis. "'Must not object to travel.' of course i knew that such an advertisement would have answers by the hundreds and i thought my own chance of securing the post extremely small however i applied at the address given and wrote to mr smith who was staying at a large hotel at the west end I must confess that my heart gave a jump when I received a note a couple of days later asking me to call at the Cosmopol at my earliest convenience. I do not know, sir, what your experiences of life may have been, and so I cannot tell whether you have known such moments. A slight sickness, my heart beating rather more rapidly than usual, A choking in the throat, and a difficulty of utterance, such were my sensations as I walked to the Cosmopol. I had to mention the name twice before the hall porter could understand me, and as I went upstairs my hands were wet. I was a good deal struck by Mr. Smith's appearance. He looked younger than I did, and there was something mild and hesitating about his expression. He was reading when I came in, and he looked up when I gave my name. "'My dear sir,' he said, "'I am really delighted to see you. "'I have read very carefully the letter you were good enough to send me. "'Am I to understand that this document is in your own handwriting?' "'He showed me the letter that I had written, "'and I told him I was not so fortunate as to be able to keep a secretary myself. "'Then, sir,' he went on, "'the post I advertised is at your service. "'You have no objection to travel, I presume?' As you may imagine, I closed pretty eagerly with the offer he made, and thus I entered the service of Mr. Smith. The first few weeks I had no special duties. I received a quarter's salary, and a handsome allowance was made me in lieu of board and lodging. One morning, however, when I called at the hotel according to instructions... "'My master informed me that I must hold myself in readiness for a sea voyage, "'and to spare necessary detail, in the course of a fortnight we landed at New York. "'Mr. Smith told me that he engaged on a work of special nature, "'in the compilation of which some peculiar researches had to be made. "'In short, I was given to understand that we were to travel to the Far West.' after about a week had been spent in new york we took our seats in the cars and began a journey tedious beyond all conception day after day and night after night the great train rolled on threading its way through cities the very names of which were strange to me passing at slow speeds over perilous viaducts skirting mountain ranges and pine forests and plunging into dense tracts of wood where mile after mile and hour after hour the same monotonous growth of brushwood met the eye and all along the continual clatter and rattle of the wheels upon the ill-laid lines made it difficult to hear the voices of our fellow passengers we were a heterogeneous and ever-changing company often i woke up in the dead of night with a sudden grinding jar of the brakes and looking out found that we had stopped in the shabby street of some frame-built town lighted chiefly by the flaring windows of the saloon a few rough-looking fellows would often come out to stare at the cars and sometimes passengers got down and sometimes there was a party of two or three waiting on the wooden sidewalk to get on board many of the passengers were english humble households torn up from the moorings of a thousand years and bound for some problematical paradise in the alkali desert of the rockies i heard the men talking to one another of the great profits to be made on the virgin soil of america and two or three who were mechanics expatiated on the wonderful wages given to skilled labor on the railways and in the factories of the states this talk usually fell dead after a few minutes And I could see a sickness and dismay in the faces of these men as they looked at the ugly brush and at the desolate expanse of the prairie, dotted here and there with frame houses, devoid of garden or flowers or trees, standing all alone in what might have been a great grey sea frozen into stillness. Day after day, the waving skyline and the desolation of a land without form or color or variety appalled the hearts of such of us as were Englishmen. And once in the night, as I lay awake, I heard a woman weeping and sobbing and asking what she had done to come to such a place her husband tried to comfort her in the broad speech of gloucester telling her that the ground was so rich that one had only to plow it up and it would grow sunflowers of itself but she cried for her mother and her old cottage and the beehives like a little child the sadness of it all overwhelmed me and i had no heart to think of other matters the question of what mr smith could have to do in such a country and of what manner of literary research he carried on in the wilderness hardly troubled me now and again my situation struck me as peculiar i had been engaged as a literary assistant at a handsome salary and yet my master was still almost a stranger to me "'Sometimes he would come to where I was sitting in the cars "'and make a few banal remarks about the country. "'But for the most part of the journey he kept to himself, "'not speaking to anyone, and so far as I could judge, "'deep in his thoughts. "'It was, I think, the fifth day from New York "'when I received the intimation that we should shortly leave the cars.' I had been watching some distant mountains which rose wild and savage before us, and I was wondering if there were human beings so unhappy as to speak of home in connection with those piles of lumbered rock. When Mr. Smith touched me lightly on the shoulder, "'You will be glad to be done with the cars," I have no doubt, Mr. Wilkins,' he said. "'You were looking at the mountains, I think. "'Well, I hope we shall be there to-night. "'The train stops at Reading, "'and I dare say we shall manage to find our way.' "'A few hours later the brakesman brought the train "'to a standstill at the Reading Depot, and we got out. "'I noticed that the town, "'though of course built almost entirely of frame houses, "'was larger and busier than any we had passed "'for the last two days.' the depot was crowded and as the bell and whistle sounded i saw that a number of persons were preparing to leave the cars while an even greater number were waiting to get on board besides the passengers there was a pretty dense crowd of people some of whom had come to meet or to see off their friends and relatives while others were mere loafers "'Several of our English fellow-passengers got down at reading, "'but the confusion was so great "'that they were lost to my sight almost immediately. "'Mr. Smith beckoned to me to follow him, "'and we were soon in the thick of the mass, "'and the continual ringing of bells, "'the hubbub of voices, the shrieking of whistles, "'and the hiss of escaping steam, "'confused my senses, and I wondered dimly, "'as I struggled after my employer,' where we were going, and how we should be able to find our way through an unknown country. Mr. Smith had put on a wide-brimmed hat, which he had sloped over his eyes, and as all men wore hats of the same pattern, it was with some difficulty that I distinguished him in the crowd. We got free at last, and he struck down a side street and made one or two sharp turns to right and left, it was getting dusk, and we seemed to be passing through a shy portion of the town. There were few people about in the ill-lighted streets, and these few were men of the most unprepossessing pattern. Suddenly we stopped before a corner house. A man was standing at the door, apparently on the lookout for someone, and I noticed that he and Smith gave glances at one another. From New York City, ask spec, mister? "'From New York. All right. They're ready, and you can have them when you choose. "'I know my orders, you see, and I mean to run this business through. "'Very well, Mr. Evans. That is what we want. Our money is good, you know. Bring them round.' "'I had stood silent, listening to this dialogue, and wondering what it meant. "'Smith began to walk impatiently up and down the street, and the man was still standing at his door.' He had given a whistle, and I saw him looking me over in a leisurely way, as if to make sure of my face for another time. I was thinking what all this could mean when an ugly slouching lad came up a side passage leading two raw-boned horses. "'Get up, Mr. Wilkins, and be quick about it,' said Smith. "'We ought to be on our way.' We rode off together into the gathering darkness, and before long I looked back and saw the far plain behind us, with the lights of the town glimmering faintly, and in front rose the mountains. Smith guided his horse on the rough track as surely as if he had been riding along Piccadilly, and I followed him as well as I could. I was weary and exhausted, and scarcely took note of anything. I felt that the track was a gradual ascent. "'and here and there I saw great boulders by the road. "'The ride made but little impression on me. "'I have a faint recollection of passing through a dense black pine forest "'where our horses had to pick their way among the rocks, "'and I remember the peculiar effect of the rarefied air "'as we kept still mounting higher and higher. "'I think I must have been half asleep for the latter half of the ride.' and it was with a shock that i heard smith saying here we are wilkins this is blue rock park you will enjoy the view tomorrow tonight we will have something to eat and then go to bed a man came out of a rough looking house and took the horses and we found some fried steak and coarse whiskey awaiting us inside i had come to a strange place there were three rooms the room in which we had supper smith's room "'and my own. "'The deaf old man who did the work "'slept in a sort of shed, "'and when I woke up the next morning "'and walked out, I found "'that the house stood in a sort of hollow "'amongst the mountains. "'The clumps of pines "'and some enormous bluish-gray rocks "'that stood here and there "'between the trees "'had given the place the name of Blue Rock Park. "'On every side, the snow-covered mountains "'surrounded us.' the breath of the air was as wine and when i climbed the slope and looked down i could see that so far as any human fellowship was concerned i might as well have been wrecked on some small island in mid-pacific the only trace of man i could see was the rough log house where i had slept and in my ignorance i did not know that there were similar houses within comparatively easy distance as distances reckoned in the Rockies. But at the moment the utter dreadful loneliness rushed upon me, and the thought of the great plain and the great sea that parted me from the world I knew caught me by the throat, and I wondered if I should die there in Mountain Hollow. It was a terrible instant, and I had not yet forgotten it. "'Of course I managed to conquer my horror. "'I said I should be all the stronger for experience, "'and I made up my mind to make the best of everything. "'It was a rough life enough, and rough enough board and lodging. "'I was left entirely to myself. "'Smith I scarcely ever saw, nor did I know when he was in the house.' I have often thought that he was far away, have been surprised to see him walking out of his room, locking the door behind him, and putting the key in his pocket, and on several occasions, when I fancied he was busy in his room, I have seen him come in with his boots covered with dust and dirt. So far as work went, I enjoyed a complete sinecure. I had nothing to do but walk about the valley, to eat and to sleep, with one thing and another i grew accustomed to the life managed to make myself pretty comfortable and by degrees i began to venture farther away from the hollow and to explore the country one day i had contrived to get into a neighboring valley and suddenly i came upon a group of men sawing timber i went up to them hoping that perhaps some of them might be englishmen at all events they were human beings and i should hear articulate speech for the old man I have mentioned, besides being half blind and stone deaf, was wholly dumb, As so far as I was concerned. I was prepared to be welcomed in a rough and ready fashion, without much of the forms of politeness. But the grim glances, and the short, gruff answers I received astonished me. I saw the men glancing oddly at each other, and one of them who stopped work began fingering a gun and i was obliged to return on my path uttering curses on the fate which had brought me into a land where men were more brutish than the very brutes the solitude of the life began to oppress me as with a nightmare and a few days later i determined to walk to a kind of station some miles distant where a rough inn was kept for the accommodation of hunters and tourists English gentlemen occasionally stopped there for the night, and I thought I might perhaps fall in with someone of better manners than the inhabitants of the country. I found, as I had expected, a group of men lounging about the door of the log house that served as a hotel, and as I came nearer I could see that heads were put together and looks interchanged, and when I walked up the six or seven trappers stared at me in stony ferocity and with something of the disgust that one eyes a loathsome and venomous snake. I felt that I could bear it no longer, and I called out, Is there such a thing as an Englishman here, or any one with a little civilization? One of the men put his hand to his belt, but his neighbor checked him and answered me, you'll find we've got some of the resources of civilization before very long mister and i expect you'll not fancy them extremely but anyway there's an englishman tarrying here and i've no doubt he'll be glad to see you there you are that's mr dobernoon A young man dressed like an English country squire came and stood at the door and looked at me. One of the men pointed to me and said, That's the individual we were talking about last night. Thought you might like to have a look at him, squire. And here he is. The young fellow's good-natured English face clouded over, and he glanced sternly at me and turned away with a gesture of contempt and aversion sir i cried i do not know what i have done to be treated in this manner you are my fellow countrymen and i expected some courtesy he gave me a black look and made as if he would go in but he changed his mind and faced me you are rather imprudent i think to behave in this manner you must be counting on a forbearance which cannot last very long which may last a very short time indeed and let me tell you this sir you may call yourself an englishman and drag the name of england through the dirt but you need not count on any english influence to help you if i were you i would not stay here much longer he went into the inn and the men watched my face as i stood there wondering whether i was going mad The woman of the house came out and stared at me as if I were a wild beast or a savage, and I turned to her and spoke quietly. I am very hungry and thirsty. I have walked a long way. I have plenty of money. Will you give me something to eat and drink? No, I won't, she said. You had better quit this. End of Section 4, Part 1 of Novel of the Dark Valley